At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective. I am your co-host. And with me today, as always, is the other co-host and star of the show, Nadia Butt. Nadia, how are you? I'm good, Rob. How are you this week? I am lovely, as always. I'm in a very folly yeah. mood. Yeah. I'm in a- yeah. It's uh, autumn here. You know, foliage is kicking foliage. in. Foliage. Yeah. yeah. No, that's so that, that was one of the questions I had for you today is, are you a fall person? A hundred percent. I love everything fall. I used to be the person that drank like the pumpkin spice lattes, but not anymore. I think we've talked, um, I think we've talked about this. Uh, I think so. So yeah. what percentage of people do you think say fall is their favorite season? Huh? Mm, in the U.S. In the or like States. around the world? In the United States. I would say like 40%. No, yeah, 40% of people. You're a little high, but it's about, it's around 35%, right? The the, the oh, really that's like pretty fall. close though. Yeah, yeah. And I I, I have okay. to say like I, I tried to I tried to make a case for any of the other seasons, but no, like definitely also mm. a fall person myself. And there's science behind it, right? So like the, just that optimal mm. temperature makes us all just feel a lot better, lowers our anxiety level. And so it's, totally. uh, it, there's, there's a reason for it. For me, it's like the back to like, I think because I equate it to like back to school mentality. And even if I'm not in school, I mean, I am in school now, but if <laughs> if I wasn't in school, someday. it still is just like, yeah, someday I won't be in school anymore, but it's like a reset. It's like a, it's almost like a new year for me, at least the mindset that I have. It's just like new, I don't know, new season kind of change in pace settling down from the the summer season that tends to be pretty hectic and outdoorsy and can i tell you one thing i went to the we went to the uh or my wife went to the uh the farmer's market in uh, salt lake city you know what they had this week what apple cider donuts oh my god were you so excited so i may never have to come to boston again i may never be there again i it's yeah there's there's nothing i need there okay fine come come (laughs) visit you they do have such good apple cider donuts here. I am surprised that they have good ones in Salt Lake City. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, yeah. No, they're 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 almost they're almost the same level of quality. So so uh so so Nadia, shall we should we get yeah. to this week's stories? What yes, do we call Rob, those let's stories? Get to this, we're calling it the new segment. Yeah. The deets. <laughs> You're the one that made the said deets. I had no. to say the deets. I I did. So <laughs> let's get to the deets. Awesome. The first story we have, um, according to the Associated Press and the LA Times on September 27th, Walmart announced that they are partnering with a fertility startup to offer benefits under its insurance plan. 
that will help its workers expand their families. So the benefits actually range from in vitro fertilization, as well as fertility testing, regardless of sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, or marital status. Um, they will also have access to more fertility clinics and the plan also helps employees who are trying to access surrogacy and adoption benefits as well. Okay. Rob, what is your reaction? You know, I don't know anyone at Walmart DEI, but I do use them as an example for something that they do in their public DEI reporting, which I think is very effective in the way that they present something. So it, they do strike me as having very positive intentions in this space. And so I think this has obviously a lot of positive impacts on families, particularly LGBTQ uh, plus workers and their families. I do have some personal mm -hmm. experience on this in that, you know, so it makes me a little skeptical, right? So I have the experience of seeing the benefit, of some, you know, benefit and being excited. And in my case, that benefit was around $10,000. And then you meet the reality right. that the drugs for one round of IVF are around $6,000. And then, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and you realize that you're just getting a drop in the bucket if you set a limit on, on IVF. And so, uh, and that can have a negative impact, right? So if you're, you're a worker, you start down the road of IVF and you run out of that benefit, you have a choice of either going forward mm -hmm. or going or, or stopping. And that can be very hard. And, and I don't, right. and then it can be potentially even more costly to the worker in the long run, right? So um, you have right. a choice. You can either keep, keep going. And I don't know if the average Walmart mar worker can afford to keep going after that benefit is exhausted. And so uh, I think it's a positive step. You have to see how it plays out. I do like the way that Amazon does this, right? So they just they just say, we'll pay until you get a baby, right? And so mm -hmm. with limitless benefits. Oh, interesting. But, it's, but that's Amazon, right? So they have unlimited resources and not the, every company is going to be able right. to do that. So I'm pro, uh, you know, this benefit. It's just, it, it, it doesn't always, you have to see how it plays it out. It comes with. Absolutely. Yeah, what, do you, what, are, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't look at it from the lens of that. What I looked at it was I just have a lot of friends. Um, I'm kind of at that age group where many of my friends are having struggles conceiving. And um, and I, I have actually a lot of friends who've used surrogacy and it's expensive. It's so, it's so, <laughs> it's so expensive. expensive. It's so expensive. And so um, having a benefit like this, I think, just opens the doors, I think, for other organizations to kind of review their policy as it relates to helping families grow. And so I think it's a good step in the right direction. And there's always room for improvement, yeah. right? Always. Here's an idea. How about the U.S. government? Just just pay for it, mm. right? Are yeah. we talking universal health care right now? <laughs> <I'm> not... <laughs> Are we going there? Yeah, just pay for it, right? Let's we have a, we have a demographic, uh, right? Like we have a lower birth rate. Like let's let's solve this problem, mm -hmm. right? Like let's and not put the burden right. on companies to appeal to their better angels to try to uh, to try to, to to make this happen for people that want to have larger right. families. All right, the second story. Second story. <laughs> you're you're, yeah. you're skeptical. The California has become the fourth state requiring employers to post pay ranges in job postings, and then companies with over 100 employees will have to report mean and median hourly pay rates by job category and demographic cuts. What, what any any thoughts on on this, Nadia? You excited? Yes. So, pay disparity is a is a deep seated issue. Like yeah. how he is a deep seated here. <laughs> Not all employers will be enthusiastic about fixing it. I think that's pretty clear. Um, I, even for the most earnest of companies, I think in states with these new rules or following kind of this trend, trend could unravel some harsh realities. Mm. And so 
these leaders, I think, should be very well prepared to continue to lead with humility mm-hmm. and have a, a continuous improvement mindset. But yeah, I I think from an employee's standpoint, yes, transparency is really important. Um, I think it saves on people's time. I think it saves on people's kind of desire to or energy to move forward in a in an interview process. And also just in general, it's it's equitable. <laughs> right. It's, yeah. it's like, let's That's pay very, people equitable for the work that they a do. A very basic level. Yeah. No, um, I should. Yeah. I should also mention that, uh, yeah. that studies indicate thoughts? that, you know, that disclosing those pay bans do does help narrow the gender gap. And I would assume the racial uh, pay gaps as well by producing better offers for women and minority job candidates, uh, while slightly lowering pay for men. I would I I would just note there. So I'm not. It doesn't say exactly how much. So that 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 would probably uh, you know impact my view. I'm kidding. Yeah. No, I know you're kidding. <laughs> Are I know you, you're kidding. Do you? So, um, but I do. Yeah, but I, I can't do. think of anything Wait. negative, right? So I think I think it pushes companies oh. toward communicating openly about their pay policies. And their practices and starting to really break yes. down what goes into an individual employee's pay and like what their what their policies are. So, uh, you know, I love the practice of setting the offer salary for external candidates as well. So some of the arguments I've heard yeah. against it are that people don't really understand all that goes into pay. Uh, and it's really hard to explain it. And so that to me is not a really good argument. It's like, well, uh, just do a better job communicating, right? Yeah transparency. You know, I have a question for you, Rob, about this. You said you had mentioned like there's not a negative, but the only negative drawback I could see is if there's a a, a national company or a global company and you start doing pay equity and like the states, certain states, you said now California is the fourth state. I think there's actually what, like Connecticut, Nevada, maybe yeah. I, I could be. It's all the states. It's all the states where, what, where uh, marijuana was, was uh, legalized. Those are the places that have tra- pay transparency. Oh, really? yeah. yeah. Another joke. <laughs> I mean, maybe. So my question, though, is like, what if you have an organization where it's mandated in California, but it's not mandated in, say, Florida? So like how if you're an employee in Florida, is it do you think these organizations are going to go across the board and just say all of the roles will be especially we have a remote workforce. So like all of the roles will have um, kind of salary transparency, salary range transparency. Um, or do you think it's just going to be those specific states? I think that, like in many things, California sets the standard and then everyone else has to follow. And, you know, so you have a big chunk of the country that has to adhere to the California standard. And that will start the ball rolling for a lot of other states. And I think that uh, if you're if you're a company that's working across states and, and borders, then or even across international borders, then you you tend to work to the policy the 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 you know the, the highest bar on these things right so you sure. will it, it makes a ton of sense to then just have a policy of greater pay transparency at that point and enact it for all of your workers and do a good job communicating how and why you pay people what what you pay them right like that's that's where this is going it's going to happen and so the smart companies are going to be out in front of this absolutely Okay, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Dr. Jody Dutchin. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back, folks. So this week on Inclusive Collective, we have Dr. Jody Dutchin joining us. Dr. Dutchin is an organizational consultant and educator. Her mission is to help realize gender equity in the workplace as soon as possible. In addition to being co-founder and managing partner of Orange Grove Consulting, Dr. Dutchin is Associate Dean of Innovative Education and Programs at Suffolk University. She has spent her career transforming the way people work and designs top-tier women's leadership. She has consulted and run workshops for clients such as Accenture, Microsoft Partners, and Oracle. Um, Dr. Dutchin is co-author of the books, The Orange Line, A Woman's Guide to Integrating Career, Family, and Life, and The Next Smart Step, How to Overcome Gender Stereotypes and Build a Stronger Organization. I am personally super excited to have her here because she was my prior business school professor. Welcome, Dr. Dutchin. Thank you for joining us on Inclusive Collective. Thanks, Nadia. Thanks, Rob. Dr. Detchen, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks again so much for being here. Uh, look, you know, super excited to meet you and and talk to you today. So, my my first question is, as associate dean for innovative programs, as well as the founder and principal consultant uh, for a DEI strategy consult- consulting firm, can you tell us how you ended up in each of these places and how these two roles fit together? Where how you see them fitting together? If they do, I, I hope they do. Yeah, so, you know, my my career is such a zigzag. In fact, in our first book, when we interviewed like 120 women, everybody, unless you grew up saying I'm going to be a doctor, most people's careers are zigzags. So I actually started my career as a programmer in tech, and I actually love wow. tech, still miss tech. And then I sort of zigzagged my way through into more of an education focus at higher ed and became a professor. And then I was like, I'm, I was really missing something. And I, I've always been a gender advocate my entire life. I've also, mm-hmm. also always been an inclusion advocate my entire life. And I realized I got to do something in this because this is my passion. And so my business partner, Kelly Watson, and I started just talking because we were part of this networking group. And we realized, hey, let's do some research. Let's figure out what's going on. Why is it that women aren't moving into executive mm-hmm. roles? And so mm-hmm. we did the research and we realized that there were all these different layers of you know, people getting in their own way as well as systemic. So what marries these two positions really well is that from our research, we realized that there's a ton of work to help organizations change the way they operate so mm-hmm. that they can become more inclusive, so they can deal with some of the individual issues, but they can also deal with a lot of the systemic issues. Mm-hmm. It parallels really nicely with education with higher ed, because in higher ed, you have to do the research. In higher ed, I, as an administrator, I'm actually thinking about how we teach people. I'm thinking about how we can innovate from a learning perspective. So a lot of the things that I know from the from the education side, I can bring to the business, the stuff that I learn about the business, I can bring into my classroom, my teaching. So there's just this beautiful marriage of the Mm. two that I really love. It feeds each other. You know, sticking to kind of the classroom and what you're seeing with some of the students, what are you observing in the classroom as it relates to innovation and specifically diversity, equity, inclusion? Like I would imagine that the future of DE&I and that generation kind of goes hand in hand, especially with the trends that we're seeing in the workforce. And maybe you can speak to that too, in terms of how is the workforce shifting? So what are some of the things that you're observing? And then how is that workforce shifting? 
Well, first of all, what I see in the classroom, and this is both at undergrad and grad level, is the classroom is extremely diverse. So it's diverse from an interest level, but it's, it's ethnically and, and racially and gender diverse. So you're, I'm, I've seen this huge shift in the 15 plus years that I've been teaching towards the diversity. The other thing is, is that people want to know how to, how to manage diversity. So one of the things that I always talk about with my students is like, look at your teams. Look at how much diversity in your, is in your teams. You've got the cognitive diversity. You've got the background diversity. You've got the interest. Diver- like, there's so much diversity. You are learning how to manage diversity as you are going through school. So this is something that I've been able to talk about in the last five years. Prior to that, I really couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm definitely seeing the diversification of the classroom. I'm also seeing a lot more, um, especially at the undergraduate level and maybe a little bit at the graduate level, there's a lot more uncertainty. So people don't exactly know what the future is going to hold. And so there's a lot. So when you think about innovation, I think people want to make the world a better place in a broad way. And mm-hmm. they're trying to figure out how can I make the world a better place in a micro way, in my way, like me as a student or as an employee or as a worker in the workforce, what can I personally do mm. to make this bigger difference? That area, I'm feeling people are, I'm sensing a lot of confusion. Totally love the big picture. Totally don't know how to implement it. Interesting. So what do, what does innovation look like in this space? Or what are some of the things that you're excited about? And uh, as people are searching or not sure how to necessarily implement uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, what, what are some of the innovative things that you're seeing that you're, that you're personally excited about? From a business perspective, that's where I'm mostly seeing a lot of the innovation in the DEI space. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited about my our work at Orange Grove Consulting because I feel like we are, and I and I know, I'm, of course, it's my business, so of course I'm <laughs> going to talk about it. But the reason I'm yeah, so excited about it is because I think that then a, there's been a lot of noise about this topic, and people get cut, caught up in vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I call it nomenclature on the rules. Should I do it this way? Should I do it that at the policy level? And the reality is change happens at the process level at Mm. the individual decision-making and the managerial decision-making level. And very few companies are focusing at that level. If you change the way somebody makes a decision, for example, about a promotion by looking at all the previous steps that they took Mm -hmm. to get to the point where they're ready for the promotion, the fact that they got in front of a client, the fact that they got a, a visible project, the fact that they got to have conversations with senior leadership, all those things are currently invisible and not tracked in almost all organizations. You start tracking that stuff. You start seeing what all the steps are in the process. Mm-hmm. Then you can change the process to be more inclusive. Mm-hmm. So what I see is most exciting are the few frontliners, the people that are on the edge that are going, okay, let's look at the process itself and make the process fair. And then the default is fair mm-hmm. and more inclusive versus mm-hmm. now it's not. You got to think about it. And that's hard. If I have to think about, it, oh yeah, I was supposed to, like, I was supposed to make sure my 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 the list of people that I'm hiring was diverse. Oh yeah, I forgot to do that. Oh well, forget it. Whereas if it's just part of the process, I'm just going to do it. Right, it's the process, and I'm not going to think about it. We have to make it. We have to make the default inclusive so that it's easy to do. That's it's what like I think is the most exciting it. and in yeah. place. Standardize yeah. it. Yeah, that's where I think the opportunity and the excitement is. Are you seeing? Yeah, I love that too. Um, in the work that you do, are you seeing the leaders' behaviors starting to shift? Are, like, are they still engaged and committed to 
organizational diversity, equity, inclusion? Like what are some of the trends that you're seeing at that leadership level as it in, in regards to diversity, so, equity, and inclusion? I think there's an enormous amount of pressure on executive leadership to adapt. I also, in some of the research that I've been doing, you know, as part of some research that I did a couple of years ago, I interviewed a bunch of senior executives in all different types of fields. And there's definitely, there's the, the language that they're using to describe leadership is mm-hmm. actually much more aligned with DEI type words. They're not necessarily using DEI, but they're talking about, you know, bringing people's voices in. They're talking about collaborating. They're talking about getting the best talent. So there's been a definitive shift in what best practice leadership looks like. And, and even in some of the most, the highly competitive, very masculine based cultures, there's a shift. We saw the shift even Mm -hmm. there. So there's definitely a movement towards this. I think the hard part comes down to, you know, like, let's just think about, for example, what's happening with hybrid. What we're seeing is a lot of leaders say, I want people in person, you know, hundred percent, get back to work. Let's go back (laughs) to the way you street. Well, A, that's not very innovative. B, it's not very inclusive because, for example, we know that women and often people of color as well prefer to have some pieces online because it's just a little safer and easier Mm -hmm. for them to manage their life. So what I'm seeing is is that the level of change required by these senior leaders to not only adapt their behavior, but also adapt the ways of working and also think about the hybrid and the COVID stuff. And there's so Mm -hmm. much noise. And then don't forget ESG. Mm. I think there's a bit of overwhelm at this level about, oh, mm-hmm. my God, what am I actually supposed to do? <laughs> you and like, I have to make I a profit, by the way. Right. And right. so in some of my research, a lot of them are like, you know, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm not sure how much more I'm going to stay. I literally heard a couple of senior leaders say, yeah, I'm not sure. And then I've mm. had other leaders that were like, we're going for it. This is what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah. So you yeah. see the gamut. You see the gamut. But I think most leaders want to actually make work a better place. But let me just add one more variable into this complexity, and that is automation. We're also seeing a lot of workers automate tracking of what workers are doing. So for example, Mm. putting software in there that talks about keystrokes and looking at the websites that you're looking at and AI and and basically being big brother. So there's a Mm. whole nother layer here about productivity that's Mm -hmm. coming in and all the inherent problems. So I think it's a very complex world right now from a leadership perspective. So I don't, mm-hmm. I, I think DEI is just one thing among many that they're looking at. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, no, we talk about a lot of these stories regularly here. And what you see is this, these, these, all these little skirmishes, these little battles between management and, and workers. And for the first time, probably in you know, 30, 40 years, you're actually starting to see workers get some leverage, right? Over the last yes. couple, two, three years. And so it's really interesting yes. to see how that all plays out. Um, I, I want to go back to gender equity. I know you, you've you've written a couple of books and uh, uh, on gender equity, and um, you know what have the last couple two three years meant to gender uh, equity and equality, both uh, both uh, in, in good and bad ways. Well, one of the things that really made me sad about COVID was that the research was quite clear that the brunt of the homeschooling, the brunt of the taking care of the health the brunt of making sure dinner was on the table fell on women. Mm -hmm. And we saw this because women left. Mm -hmm. They literally couldn't 
take it and they left. Right. And of course, the biggest brunt was on the low income women because their jobs literally went away. So if you think about the hotel maids, gone. Mm-hmm. So at the low end of the socioeconomic spectrum, those women took the biggest hit of all. Um, so I think we have a big step backwards mm-hmm. in terms of gender equity. We're starting mm-hmm. to see the pickup back to almost pre-pandemic levels of professional women in the workplace. So that's coming back to almost normal. Okay. But again, with the hybrid piece, if work if workplaces are going to require women to be back 100%, then I think we're going to see another hit. And let's just take it even further, which really also makes me sad. We're already seeing this idea of, uh, you know, who's in person is going to get the extra benefits, right? Because they're in person and that's where the decisions get made. And Mm -hmm. who gets in person? The men. Right. Right. I, for example, there's one, um, one managed senior manager that I spoke with recently and they actually have, they, 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 split their office in half. Mm-hmm. So you've got the people that come in on a regular basis and you got the people that come in on a random basis. I mean, if that is not in <laughs> wow. and out group, well done. physically yeah. wrought, I don't know. <laughs> right. what. And guess what? It's going to hit the people of color. It's going to hit the people that are physically disabled. It's going to hit women. It's going to hit all the groups that have traditionally been disadvantaged in the workplace. And people are going to go, well, they didn't come in and they're going right. to write it off in all the same ways as they before. So, so I am not bullish. Hmm. I'm not bullish. So the other that, thing that I will say though is mm-hmm. go ahead. No, no, please finish. Oh, I was just going to say the other thing that I think is going to happen is, is that when organizations and, and we, we've been working with a lot of organizations to do this, we're seeing an increase in measurement on this. And so mm-hmm. once you get this measured, so for example, if we all, I often love to talk about the word velocity of promotion. Mm-hmm. If you're measuring velocity of promotion and you see that all of a certain type of a demographic group are getting promoted faster, the bell should be going off. So mm-hmm. yes, I'm seeing some bad things in the workplace, but if we continue the move towards measurement, companies are going to have to face up to the reality that certain demographic groups are not getting the opportunities that others are, but you go, we got to measure it. Now you're talking Rob's love language. <laughs> um, measurement? Yeah. Measurement. Got, so. Yeah. Yo, yeah. excited I, there. Hold on. Hold on. All gets, right. I'm back. He gets very, yeah. he gets very excited. Um, Me too, Rob. I just want to, <laughs> but I, I, just on that point though, I think uh, Dr. Dutch, and I think that's a great, that's a great point, right? So like when you're talking about counting keystrokes, that's bad measurement, right? Like it's not like the principle of measurement. measurement what you're talking exactly. about of, of measuring velocity of promotions and understanding what the, right. the disparate impacts and uh, over and under representation among promotion. That's one thing. Counting keystrokes right. is bad measurement. Right. And so I appreciate you calling that out. I just find it lazy. On that note, then what is working as it relates to measuring and what needs to change? So, you know, cause I, Oftentimes, Jody, I know we've had these conversations before, too, is like many of these organizations, they don't have the data that's like good data, right? It's it's not value added data. And so not to give away like trade secrets or anything, but how do they how can they focus on measuring the right things and kind of be innovative in that in that manner? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I just spent a three-day virtual conference on learning analytics, right? So how do we capture the data to know how people are learning? And at the end of the day, what this is going to require is 
HR predominantly, but also operations to start capturing this data. So let's just mm-hmm. take, for example, you have a, I always call it a horse trade to see who's going to get promoted. All right. It needs to be documented. It needs to be documented. Who, who are the candidates that went into the meeting? Who are the candidates that got promoted as a result of that meeting? And that needs to right. be tracked. Mm-hmm. And we just need to, we need to get smarter and better about tracking the right data. Like we mm-hmm. have a really good idea, I think, of what the right data is. And, and people often have the systems, but they don't put the data in the systems. And then if the data is in the systems, it's in wrong. And if it's right. in, or they have the data in the systems, and they don't know what to do with it. So there's many, many components. We're still in the very early days, though, of this analytics revolution. Uh, I'm, I think it's going to take at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. at least 10 years mm-hmm. for this to come yeah. through. But that's what we have to do. And I love your kind of suggestion of folks as easy as just tracking who's in the meeting and then who gets promoted right. based off that meeting because bias right. is in decisions, right? Like we know this you, right. bias creeps in in decision-making processes. And so when you even just inviting, who you who are you inviting to that meeting is right. such a telling kind of um, tale. And so being able to track even that is really important. Yeah, that's why I love, I think this, the assessment, taking a current state assessment and then assessing people every year. I think there's been an over, an over focus on engagement surveys myself. I think people, they do all this engagement stuff, but what does engagement really tell us? Engagement Mm. is a bizarre measurement. You know, some days I'm engaged some days I'm not, but I'm very productive <laughs> most days. So, I mean, what am I measuring with engagement? What I would like to see us instead, let's start figuring out what the right measurements are. What is it? Well, let's say, say it differently. What are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish? So if you take DEI, what is it that we want? At the end mm-hmm. of the day, what people want is they want to make sure they're hiring the best talent and that talent is productive. At the end mm-hmm. of the day, that's it. If you have one demographic that predominates in your executive leadership, to me, that is a blaring indicator that you don't have the best talent because it's not right. possible. Unless that demographic group was has some kind of genetic advantage in that particular business area, it's not the case. Right, right. right. So therefore, let's get really, really good at measuring what it is we're supposed to measure. And and we do know what that is. It's like this mm-hmm. is not this has been decided. <laughs> this has been defined. Right. And it's going to get better and better as we get better at it. But I find that the other problem I think that happens is a lot of the times DEI is placed. Well, there's two things that I see happening with DEI. First off, it's often placed in these affinity groups. Mm-hmm. And these affinity groups don't have budget and they don't have power. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of noise and they put pressure on the powers that be, but they're not the people that can actually make the change because right. that's, the system's not set up for that. The second thing I see is that a lot of times it gets, it gets foisted on HR's shoulders and HR often doesn't have the right skill set and oftentimes do not have the data skill set to be able to make these changes. And so what I think one of the biggest problems is, is that, frankly, DEI needs to be driven operationally. What does that mean? That, what it, is, tell, yeah, through through the HR. I mean, because I, I agree and, I, and obviously I've seen a lot of the same things. Do you, in your opinion... Yeah. Where's the best place for DEI? Is it, is it within, uh, within, within HR? Uh, where's the best place for analytics? Should, should HR become an analytics function uh, pr- you know, primarily? What, what, what are your just overall thoughts on this? So I have to think structurally. I don't think I have an f- 
I, I love structure. I love organizational structure, but I often think that structure is not a one size fits all. But mm-hmm. I think DEI conceptually needs to be driven from the CEO level mm-hmm. and it needs to get operationalized from a COO level in conjunction with the CHRO. It needs to be a joint team effort. And how what it looks like in any given organization can be different, but there needs to be clear targets on what's going on based on their measurement. So I think it. a lot of people in this space, from what I've seen over the years, believe that DEI is bottom up. And the way I look at it is, is that it needs to be both bottom up and top down. From an organizational structure and process perspective, it's got to be top down. From a, you need to do this pressure, it needs to come from the bottom. Mm-hmm. And so what I hear leaders saying is, is that they're feeling the pressure from the bottom. We need to mm-hmm. do something. We need to do something. Okay, HR, go do something. And then I'm done. And I don't think it can be like that. I think it has to be, we're going to change the way we operate. I want the COO and the CHRO to jointly figure out how to get this done. Mm. Right. That's how I would do it if I were CEO. Yeah. 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 I, I love that. Um, I, I want to talk about also about intersectionality, going back to, to gender and intersectionality, because yeah. we know that, you know, we, we talk about gender pay gap and, and you know, and, and for white women, it still exists and it's and somewhat substantial, but the pay gap for black women, Latin Native women, uh, Native American, AAPI uh, are all much greater than what they are for, for white women. And Except so, for Asian women. I think Asian women oh, are actually are pretty close above, to parity, uh, right? white women. Yeah. White well, women. Not close, it depends. It depends. You got to yeah. really parse it out, but, but Asian women, uh, tend to have higher, and if you look at some of the statistics from the government, from the census, um, they're above white women in some cases. Right, right. And, and, and that's just to say that all all, the, all groups have somewhat of a different history and experience in the workplace. Exactly. And, the things that are, and, so, and so how do you think about, you know, using... You know, using data to 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 tell that story, uh, and then uh, create interventions, process system interventions on behalf of, of groups in a different way for each different group. Yeah, I think it's again you have to measure it, right? You have to actually parse it out. And the hardest part I think that happens with the data parsing is that often in these underrepresented groups, you don't really have the statistical number to basically evaluate it. So, for example. Mm-hmm. If you have, if say, let's just say that you have, you want to evaluate Native American and you have two Native Americans in your company, you can't report on that because right. it's identifiable. Identifiable. Right. So you can't do it. So there are limitations data wise in terms of the numbers and percentages that you have of certain groups. But where you have that enough statistical representation, I think breaking it down in those levels will tell you the story. So you take the same thing, velocity of promotion, and you look at it across the board and all these different groups. Now, which groups you've prioritized again is down to the organization deciding Mm -hmm. what is Mm -hmm. it that, what is important to us? What do we want to Mm -hmm. do? Mm -hmm. And it may be by industry. So for example, tech might have a totally different experience than say healthcare, which has a lot more um, intersectionality and gender parity. Right, right. So there might there's the problems are very different. This is why I really like to look at it from an organizational level. I don't like this throw the spaghetti at the wall approach mm, mm-hmm. because it's not every every not every organization's the same. Yeah, yeah. So why am I going to worry about velocity of promotion if I've actually done a really good job in promoting, mm-hmm. right. but I'm not actually hiring enough um, people of color? Oh right. shoot! Right. Now that's right. You know what I mean? I I right. need to work on the problem I have. And that's why you need the data and the perceptions to understand the current state. Uh, how can our listeners and our community be of service to you and the work that you do? So I think 
I want, what I would love for people to walk away is to realize that diversity, equity, inclusion is so much more than just checking the box and having everybody take, you know, unconscious bias training. It's about fundamentally changing the way we work and the processes that we use to make these decisions about people. And I want people to walk away with, let's just get smarter about this. And I know it's harder. It's not a switch, but this is where the real work happens. Let's, let's do the real work. So I want people to get that message out. That would be mm -hmm. one thing. Of course, um, the other thing is I want to say, of course, we have a lot of the details on how to do that in our book, The Next Smart Step. So that's another way. You can always check out our book. Awesome. <laughs> um, and one last final question. Who was your favorite student? <laughs> Nadia Butt. <laughs> Hands Woo! down. <laughs> I love it. Um, such a delight, Dr. Jody Dutchin. Thank, Thank you. you for joining us this week on Inclusive Collective. Uh, we will be right back. All right, Nadia, we're back. We're con-reflecting. Uh, we just uh, chatted with Dr. Jody Dutchin. I mentioned to you uh, in the break here that uh, I, I just, I, every answer she gave, it kind of threw me off because I could have gone on for like 30 minutes on that single yeah. <laughs> single track there. Topic. I love it. She yeah. you know, takes a lot of the same perspectives that I do when I look at this work and I look at, it, at organizations and uh, and change. So uh, loved it. Yeah. Thanks so much to Dr. Jody Detchen. What, what, what were your thoughts since you have spent yeah. a lot of time with with her? Yeah, like say some, I just love her energy and, um, you know, whether it's in or outside of the classroom, I always learn something new from her. I just appreciated her point on the leadership. Um, just having the, the leadership commitment engagement that it's still prevalent, but there's still so many things that they have to juggle. I appreciate kind of her calling that out. Um, and, and then also just uh, the measurement discussion. I know that you were, um, you know, dying inside, like you love measurement. <laughs> you were just, I know you were I like to trying things. to, I know I you. I have a tape I, yeah. measure. I walk around with a tape yeah. measure. Yeah, just measure <laughs> oh stuff. my God. I need that yeah. in your... Can you do you wear a tool belt? And is that part of your tool belt? I have belt? a ruler. Yeah. No, it's yeah. yeah. That's so funny. No, I just know how how you appreciate the discussions around measurement and just what folks are doing now. And you geek out on that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. I do yeah, yeah. I do some I do some some geeking occasionally. Yeah. Um, so awesome. So uh, great stuff there. Nadia, you know what time it is? It's time is for it the rants and raves. It's, ran it's raves and rants or rants and oh, raves, well, and it's coin flip what? time. And yes. we're gonna flip my official uh, rants and raves coin. It has the uh, Queen Elizabeth the uh, second. It's a Canadian oh. twenty cent piece that uh, that I have. Oh, and uh, so yeah, so so we're gonna gonna flip it. Oh, I don't know if that was a good one there. Oh, there you All go. All right, there you go, Nadia. And once again, you have drawn raves. So I will. Oh, okay. Let's, let's hear your rate. Let's, let's do it. Um, okay. So uh, I'm sure you're aware people around the globe are starting to stand in solidarity for the women in Iran. Um, there are protests occurring right now across Iran over the killing of 22 year old uh, Masa Amini, who died in police custody after being apprehended for not wearing um the hijab correctly hijab is like the the woman's headscarf around their um her hair and um i just i see and i hope for more people to voice their support for freedom of women's choices around the globe 
And I do hope that folks also can dismiss um, the Islamophobic rhetoric that may rise from this, um, you know, of course, as this is like extremely problematic because in Islam, women do have choice. So that's my my rave um, and a little bit of a rant. <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> <laughs> we can make it raves and rants. We can both do both. So yeah, that's true. I, I love that. Uh, I definitely appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for doing that. Uh, so my rant. So the Wall Street Journal ran an editorial titled, Hooray, a Student Loan Forgiveness Plaintiff. And that told the story of an Indiana man who was suing the Biden administration because under its loan forgiveness plan, the man will have 20,000 in debt canceled, but, but, Nadia, he will face a $1,000 state tax charge this year because that forgiveness counts as income uh, on your state taxes, on your state income taxes, right? So, so obviously mm. it's not like a real person or a real hardship, but mm -hmm. to me, I think it just must be awful to wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and see the kind of person that can't, staring back at you that can't be okay or that gets so upset by a plan to cancel student debt, a plan that was very measured, very modest in its, in its aims, mm -hmm. but can have a huge impact on the lives of many young people to say nothing of the impact on Black, Latin, um, mm -hmm. Hispanic, Latina, uh, Native American borrowers, right? All who mm -hmm. have disproportionately high student loan balances, right? So, so. Mm -hmm. You know, so for, for the man from Indiana, right, and the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> you know, if this was not an inclusive show, family show, I would say something like, go F yourself. But I would okay, not. You could say that. No, no. But I don't think I instead, okay, I'll, right. I'll say, you know, maybe reconsider your position on that on that affair. That's fair. I think that's a that's a good kind of diplomatic way to. It's a, it's a nice way. Uh, it's a nice provided, way. Yeah, it's a nice yeah, way. Yeah. It's a nice way to say, you know, go F yourself. <laughs> Yeah, I have no comment on that. So let's <laughs> let's let's close out here. <laughs> Inclusive Collective is a production of Refillion Media. If you like what you heard, be sure uh, be sure to subscribe and rate uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have feedback for us directly, send us an email at inclusivecollective at refillion.com. Uh, you can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Jody Dutchin. We'll be back next week. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that you know Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. 
See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.